Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you're having a great day. Episode 1 of the State of the Universe features Chris Culp. Chris Culp is a professor of physics at Lycoming College. He's an expert in the world of nonlinear and chaotic systems. He studies these things constantly. If you're new to this sort of thing, then he'll do a great job of explaining what it is and why it's important to study. If you're familiar with these sort of subjects, he does a great job of explaining what he does, what he's exploring, what he's interested in. In this episode, we talk a great deal about machine learning, which is something that he's really starting to explore and apply in his research. And we talk a lot about artificial intelligence, okay? Now, neither of us are experts, but we review the sorts of things maybe we could see in the future, right? Things like artificial intelligence taking over jobs that ordinary people like you and I do today. And the implications that that could have on the world. And Chris does a great job of putting a positive spin on it, I think. And he actually change, changes some of my ideas that I have uh, during this. And then that's what it's all about, right? Open up a dialogue, throw some, throw some ideas into the hat, and, and hopefully pick out the good ones. Hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, here with us today we have the great and powerful Chris Colt. Chris, Chris, you're 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 a, a jack of, of many trades, but you are an expert on one thing for sure, and that one thing is nonlinear time series analysis. Uh, so first, uh, why don't you give us a little introduction? What is nonlinear time series analysis? What is time series analysis, and why is it important? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, time series analysis is actually something that you deal with every day, but may not realize it. Um, time series analysis, I like to call it, base, I like to describe it as basically um, learning about systems from data, which sounds very vague and general, uh, but that's really what we're doing. We're taking a system that's spitting out data, all right, that we're measuring, and we're trying to figure out what processes um, govern that particular system just from the data alone. And this becomes really important when you're looking at, for example, complex systems where you may not know equations that govern the behavior or you may not know um, whether or not there's even equations at all that are governing the behavior. And so you want to ask yourself questions like, you know, what are the processes controlling this thing? Are, uh, is this random? Uh, is this system deterministic, meaning that um, past values influence current values? What's, um, what's, the under, what's going on under the hood, right? Uh, I like to think of these systems as black boxes, and we're just measuring data. We know nothing about them, and everything that we learn from them is from the actual data. Now, you mentioned nonlinear time series analysis, and that's because I focus specifically on nonlinear systems. And I want to try to avoid getting too mathy about this, but a nonlinear system is a system whose uh, output, if you will, is not directly proportional to the input. So, for example, a linear system where if you double the input, you double the output. You triple the input, you triple the output. It's kind of a simple way of, of, of describing a linear system. Sure. Uh, also, with a linear system, um, the whole is the sum of its parts. So you can um, take parts, add them together, and still get something that's like the behavior of the linear system, very simply said. 
Nonlinear systems don't behave that way. Um, if you double the input, you might have the output or get the square of the output or the square root of the output or the sine of the output or whatever complicated mathematical function you might right. find. And, uh, and, and in turn, their behavior is not always the sum of their parts. So they can be very, very complicated to work with and um, predict. And nonlinear systems surround us everywhere from, you know, population models to predator prey models to how diseases propagate through populations, um, so on and so forth. So, right. and, and so uh, one thing that's really applicable, I think, to this in, in specifically in terms of astronomy, this is what always comes to mind when I'm talking about nonlinear time series, is the, sure. the idea of a variable star, right? So we have these, these Cepheid variables, which are very regular, right? And we actually use them to gauge distance across the universe. So if we, say, look at a Cepheid variable in a neighboring galaxy in Andromeda or something, um, we know that if it's pulsating, say, two times per minute, even though it's a very fast Cepheid variable, nothing you'd actually find, but for the sake of the argument, it's pulsating very fast. The pulsation of the star is related to the actual brightness of the star. And so we're able to gauge by that mechanism how far away the Andromeda galaxy is, right? Because we know that maybe if the star were 100 miles away, it should be this bright. But it's not that bright, it's really dim. And we can use the power law of light, and that's that's not necessarily important, but we can use the fact that we know how light behaves to gauge how far away that star is. Now, there are stars out there that are not like that, right? There are stars where you look at them, and they are not periodic at all, right? And so you can record the brightness of these stars over time, but it's it's changing rapidly. It's not. It doesn't seem to fit some nice distribution. It doesn't seem to be changing nicely. And that, that's the thing that always comes to me when we talk about nonlinear time series analysis. Uh, is this idea that there are things, and not just stars, there are things in every aspect of the universe, in every aspect of everyone's life, right? Like traffic, if you will, that are dictated not necessarily by things that behave nicely. Would you say that's accurate? Oh, absolutely. Um, fun fact, uh, you probably aren't aware of this, but my first research project as an undergraduate actually involved Cepheid variable stars. Interesting. What were you, what uh, aspect of them? I had this very ambitious project where I was going to try to uh, uh, calculate the Hubble constant from Cepheid variable data. I see. And I reached out to um, the astronomer Wendy Friedman, and she very graciously sent me a bunch of her papers. Uh, she was at Caltech at the time. And here I am, just, you know, an undergraduate from some unknown school. Uh, e um, at the time, I think I emailed her. I believe it was, yeah, the days of email still uh, at that point. And I emailed her and I said, uh, hey, um, can you help me out here? I am uh, trying to do this project, and I see you're an expert at this. And she could have totally blown me off as an undergraduate. Like, yeah, I'm not going to waste my time with this kid. What's going on here? But she didn't. She sent me this big packet of, of her papers, which had um, the various um, brightnesses, the um, absolute magnitudes of the separate variable stars, uh, from which then I tried to attempt to calculate a distance um, using the period uh, distance relationship, if I remember correctly, it's been it's it's yeah. been longer than I care to say that since I've been an undergraduate. Um, and from there, I tried to at attempt to um, calculate a Hubble constant, which, of course, with the Andromeda galaxy is too close. And but right. I was I was 18, cutting my teeth in scientific research. So uh, yes. you know the. Uh, the indiscretions of youth, I suppose, you yes. know, not knowing what they're doing. Right. Um, 
But yeah, but back to your comments. Yeah, absolutely. Irregularities. You know, traffic is another great example of a complex system where um, you have individual agents, in this case, the cars interacting, uh, and you get these emergent behaviors that you may not expect, like traffic jams, for example. Um, so yeah, that's a good example. The variable stars you've mentioned, there's a paper in 2004 by, I believe you pronounce the name Bolcher, um, at all. And he, uh, talked about a certain, uh, type of star that he was suspecting to be chaotic in nature. Now, Chaos is a nonlinear behavior where you have short-term predictability, but long-term unpredictability. And it turns out it's weird because there are equations that govern chaos. And if you think about Newtonian physics, if you know the initial state of a system, you should be able to predict that um, future states out to T equals infinity. Well, maybe not T equals infinity, but you get the idea. Um, and in chaotic systems, that's simply not true. There's a time horizon, and beyond this time horizon, your predictions begin to break down. And so he was looking at these light curves and, and thought, hey, there might be some, you know, chaos um, in uh, exhibited by these stars. And uh, that led me reading that paper actually led me to looking at trying to detect chaos in time series, which is an old problem. People have been looking at this problem for many decades, um, but there's been little progress in irregularly sampled time series. So. When you think about variable stars, for example, the ideal would be to measure the brightness once a day or once an hour, whatever your sampling rate, you know, whatever you're interested in, in, in trying to, um, to measure. Right. As you know, as an astronomer, that is just not going to happen, right? Because you've got cloudy nights, you've got telescope availability issues. There's all kinds of reasons why you can't measure a time series uh, of a, excuse me, a light curve every, you know, hour every day. Right. There's gaps are are what we be what we call a irregularly sampled time series. So you might have a burst of data, a large gap, and then another burst of data. You might have quick short bursts of data with gaps in between. You might even have close to regularly sampled, but you might have some kind of issue in your me- your timing device where there's a little bit of error. You're not really measuring every hour. You might be measuring a little bit before or a little bit after. And Sometimes you can just, you know, sweep it under the rug and say, well, that's close enough to every hour. In some situations, you can't. And so these are all examples of what we call irregularly time, well, irregularly sampled time series, excuse me. And they're harder to analyze. Most time series analysis algorithms are designed for regularly sampled time series and preferably infinitely long regularly sampled time series, right. um, which, of course, the real world rarely, rarely wants to provide infinitely long Regularly sampled times, regular sample time series. In fact, it's so rare, I'd say it never happens. Right, but there are uh, there are things that we have, especially in the age of big data right now, that are very regularly sampled, and they yes. are fitting the bill of time series. And so, an example would be like stock market closing indexes or something. Sure. Right. So we've recorded that stuff for decades. We've recorded yes. the, the price at which a stock has closed for decades. So, is there any info, is there any research into this idea of understanding uh, stock prices, how they change over time, whether it's p- p- uh, periodic in some cases, whether it's chaotic in some cases? I think what you're really asking is, do scientists want to try to make money? Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm hoping that we could turn this, this podcast that we have right here into a way for us to collectively to make a few billion dollars. 
Yeah, you know, people have been trying to do this kind of thing with stocks for decades uh, to um, mostly limited degrees of success. Uh, it turns out that when you're talking about stock prices and you're talking about some of these more complicated series, one of the questions you need to ask is, is the system random or deterministic? In other words, um, does today's stock price dictate tomorrow's stock price? And that there are some rules that we just don't know, or um, is it really just a free for all? Right? I mean, the next stock value tomorrow has nothing to do with today's value, and, and the answer is uh, it's probably somewhere in between. Right? That yeah. you have, um, of course, some correlation. There are there are things called correlated random variables where. Uh, stock price might be a good example of that, where if, you know, today Apple stock is high, tomorrow it'll probably be high as well. Will it increase or decrease? And by how much? I don't know, but it'll probably be a high value, right? So that's a correlation, um, a direct correlation. So determining whether or not these um, stocks are, or any time series is deterministic or stochastic or random, excuse me, is an important question. And it's one that I actually spent quite a bit of my career working on. How do you determine whether or not a time series is random? Because sometimes these deterministic behaviors, these nonlinear deterministic behaviors like uh, chaos, can be really hard to distinguish from randomness if you just look at the time series data. Um, so visual inspection, while it always should be done for time series, doesn't always tell you everything you need to know. In fact, it rarely tells you everything you need to know. So... What's interesting about this this uh, distinction is it goes beyond stock values. In fact, there was just recently a paper written by um, – gosh, I'm trying to remember the author off the top of my head uh, – Jadeep Pathka. Pathak. Yeah, Jadeep Pathak. And uh, – no, excuse me. That's uh, that's not the right paper. I was just reading that. That's, a, that's the wrong paper. Uh, Constantinos. That's uh, his group. And basically they're asking the question, is atrial fibrillation – determined by random or deterministic processes. And so even the outside of stocks talking about medicine, right? These types of questions are, are really important right. and how you go about distinguishing them. Ultimately, one way of distinguishing between the two is looking for patterns, recurring patterns in the data and random series will have a lot of different patterns. And in fact, if you wait, long enough in a random series, all possible patterns in a, in a series will occur. Deterministic systems will not exhibit all possible patterns because there are certain states the system can't get to. They're forbidden by the rules. And so there'll be certain types of behaviors that a time series won't display. And if you can detect those quote unquote missing patterns, then you can have evidence for a deterministic series. That's just one way of you know, detecting determinism. There are other tests that people have done out there. So I know I've kind of gone away from your original question about no, stuff. No. I thought it was important for the, the listeners to know that, you know, it's um, this is a core question, I think, in time series analysis, because we're interested ultimately as scientists often in predictive mathematical models. We don't want to just be able to um, – understand the system for its own sake. We want to make predictions and maybe even ultimately attempt control. Um, and if you want to make a predictive mathematical model, one of the first things you need to know is what types of components do you need to put in your model? 
And I, I would argue that one of the most basic questions you need to ask is, is the system deterministic or is it random? Uh, because that will determine how you uh, construct your model. What elements do you put in your model? Right. So let's talk something that, that people would, would recognize as a chaotic system. What's a real-world chaotic system? The classic example of a real-world chaotic system is the weather. Okay. And, All right. And what's an example of a real-world deterministic system? Uh, oh, well, that's that's easy. Uh, if you've ever been a child, which all of us have, uh, you've likely ridden on a swing. And right. so if you're swinging back and forth, you can um, predict pretty accurately where you're going to be from what point in time to the next if you knew your, your initial height of your swing and initially how fast you're going. You can you make that prediction pretty easily. Right. Well, easily for physicists, I should say. You know. Uh, <laughs> okay, and so the idea that there's no forbidden systems on the swing essentially means if you give it the right amount of energy, the swing, you give you put the right person on it, you push it at the right speed, it can attain any height, it can attain any speed, it can swing around the bar, right? And so, in a sense, all of it, depending on the initial data you give it, depending on how hard you push it, depending on who's on it it can achieve any number of possible states. Yes, that's true. Uh, but however, uh, if you're doing time series analysis, you're likely only looking at one um, recording, if you will, right? So right. one, the start of, and so, you know, your your um, your initial height will determine, and your initial speed will determine your initial energy, and that will ultimately determine how high you can go in the future. And so your your initial energy will basically dictate that there'll be initial to be states that you can attain. Um, so if you just basically, um, you know, walk your swing back a few steps and let it go and just swing back and forth, you're not going to go over the top because you don't have enough energy. You've just right. taken a couple steps back. So I would say in that, in that situation, then there will be for there'll be some forbidden um, states there. Um, this is a, a good way of thinking about it uh, for those people who. Uh, are listening and are experts in this field, they might be a little unsatisfied with that description uh, because it's not exactly what we mean when we're talking about forbidden states and time series analysis, but it's a good close uh, approximation. Right. Okay. And then a chaotic system. What comes to mind when you mentioned the idea that you have short-term predictability, but you have long-term unpredictability? What immediately comes to mind is the idea of, of going back to traffic. Of If you go on Google Maps and you say, I want to go to Winslow, Arizona today. It will give you an estimated time of arrival based on real-time traffic uh, in various locations that you'll be driving through. And that traffic is, for Google's sensors, predictable down to the exact second you type in your directions, right? But over long scales, if I start driving to Arizona, then by the time I say I get to Texas and I'm driving through like Amarillo, Texas, that initial data will no longer be useful. The traffic will be much different in Texas compared to when I looked it up and compared to how it actually is when I get there. Would you say that's a, a good example of a, of a chaotic series that people encounter quite often? I would say that is likely random. Okay. Uh, just because... Again, you know, you're talking about short-term predictability in the flow of traffic. Long-term, you have other influences that you can't predict that would change 
your, um, your, your speeds. If we go back to weather, uh, I think it might be a little bit, uh, easier to understand. Okay. So with weather, uh, being a chaotic system, what that basically means is, um, the following. You could be, um, given, let's say from design, divine inspiration, the, the exact, um, mathematical model for the weather, right? And so now you're like, woohoo, I'm going to start a, um, business where I'm going to predict the weather and make tons of money with these accurate predictions of the weather, right? Uh, because, you know, you've got this divinely given model. It's guaranteed to be correct. Right. Well, the, the problem here is that your measurement instrumentation is probably not divinely delivered, and therefore there are errors in it. Even if it measures out to the 10th decimal place well, you have an error in the 11th decimal place. Okay. Or you might be given, you know, divinely built weather instrumentation, but you're using a regular computer that was not divinely built. And, and so there's going to be rounding in that computer because computers can only store numbers out to a particular precision. And after that, there's rounding error. Right. And so you may put in your barometric pressure and your temperature and your wind speeds for that day and all these different things, put them into your computer and run the model. But because of these rounding errors, whether it's by the computer or from your instrumentation, the predicted model is going to behave differently after a period of time than the actual weather. And in these chaotic systems, small uncertainties in the initial state lead to long-term unpredictable outcomes. I see. I see. Yes. The, the weather is, is, is a fantastic example of, of, of this idea of nonlinear behavior existing all around us all the time. What's interesting to me is that there's not, at least that I could find, maybe you, maybe you are, have a different opinion, but I tried understanding if this idea of, of analyzing nonlinear time series and using it as a tool to understand things, if it's prevalent in industry, in any form of industry, if any industry says, okay, I know that we provide a service and that service inherently relies upon stuff that is nonlinear, is there a way we can improve it by anal by analyzing the time series as if it's nonlinear? I cannot find any industry that does that. I cannot find any industry outside of academia that uses the type of tools that, that you use. Why do you think that is? Or or am I wrong? Well, um, I think there's different reasons for that. Actually, one, and, and this was one of the things that they had learned about early in the days of stock forecasting, is that sometimes the linear models work quite well. Right. And so because we live in this sort of coarse-grained world, if you will, sometimes linear models just get the job done. Um, that said, I would guess that there are probably companies out there doing it and not telling people they're doing it for competitive reasons. I see. Yes. It's a very good so, point in that academia tends to be open source and industry tends to be shut, shut their doors to other people. And there's reasons for that, obviously, that we don't need to explain. Um, but yes, that, that's a good point. Yeah. And so, um, a lot of companies do tend to tout their, their techniques, uh, to a certain extent, right? They might not give you the code they use. They might not upload their code to the internet for everyone to, 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 ha to peek at, but they do tend to, 
um, release the sorts of things they're working on. So an example would be, uh, I was looking at this yesterday. Have you heard of the the, the GE Brilliant Manufacturing Suite? Have, have no, I haven't. Okay. No, I haven't. Well, the GE Brilliant Manufacturing Suite is a, this thing that GE does now. It's a, it's a product they sell, which is why it's public, right? Um, if a company was using nonlinear time series analysis, chances are they're not selling you something that it produces, and so maybe that's why that's not public. But what they do is they'll come to your manufacturing base, wherever it is, it's factory, what have you, and they will uh, fully incorporate machine learning into essentially every aspect of that um, of that manufacturing base. So they will go through all of your machines that you use, uh, and they'll add sensors and other data collection devices. So say you have a, a turbine or something, right? They'll add sensors to it, and those sensors will constantly read back data. How fast is the turbine spinning? Is the turbine getting hot? These It'll give you important things to help you in your manufacturing process. Now, what they find is that they automatically use these brilliant manufacturing suite data tools to, uh, to use machine learning. So what sort of temperatures lead to inefficient processes, right? What sort of speeds does the turbine have to spin at that it doesn't work very well? And they use all of this to essentially change the entire way that you do manufacturing. And a lot of companies are beginning to use this idea of incorporating machine learning of data analysis tools into their industry at large. And what they find is that these tools can increase efficiency so much better than humans could ever dream of. And I was wondering if there was anything like that in the nonlinear world. And, and there probably, as we just talked about, there might be, but they might be keeping it under the hood. But the point is, uh, industry at large is really starting to take advantage of these types of tools that exist. And machine learning is one of the big ones that everyone is jumping on. Uh, as an example, my, my wife was recently talking to someone in her field, uh, and this person was at a conference in Atlanta, some, some business accounting type conference. And one of the things they look for in new employees is a knowledge of machine learning. Now that seems weird coming from a finance, business, and accounting perspective that they would want their new hirees to have knowledge in machine learning. But the power of machine learning, and in particular in this, in this example of the, the GE Brilliant Manufacturing Suite, is becoming so important in, in almost every field. And I think that it's becoming important, not because all of a sudden it got really good, right? Not because all of a sudden um, it became amazing overnight. I don't think that's why it's it's been incorporated everywhere so quickly. I think it's because people started to realize how powerful this stuff is. And I think it's been powerful for a long time. People have just neglected to use it. And do you think that you're, the tools that you work on are the same way? That they could be incredibly powerful if incorporated correctly. They just are not being incorporated. Um, I think, you know, I think they are, I think they are being incorporated. Uh, we just might not be aware of them. Right. Uh, I know that, yeah, I know that there are various, you know, um, for example, you, I read about in papers, um, various measures of entropy, for example, being used on time series analysis or time series of EKG um, data to diagnose, you know, various heart conditions, things like that. Uh, I, I think it's there. I think it's just not sexy. Okay. 
Yeah, I do want to come back to that though. The EKG thing. I, I'm interested in that. We'll come back. Yeah, to that. I think I think it's there. I think it's not um, as obvious that it's there. I think it's stuff that goes on under the hood. I do know of a few companies. Uh, now that you've mentioned this, I think thought about this that do use um, nonlinear metrics for monitoring um, combustion things like that. So uh, I would say it's definitely there, um, but. One thing I keep in, keep in mind is, you know, we have these these old linear models that work well, and and so as long as you're getting close enough for a lot of companies, they're not they're not in the process of doing science, right? Scientists are working on the edge of our understanding of the actual systems where the details matter, and as you zoom into these details more and more, these nonlinear effects, these nonlinear behaviors become more and more important. Um, so. As far as what you said about machine learning, I'm not at all surprised. Uh, I think there have been machine learning algorithms for in the finance sector for quite a while, actually. And I think now they're just expecting people to know it. Yes. Uh, one yeah. thing that, that that's interesting, I, I saw this in um, the American, I think it was the American Physical Society's publication, uh, that Python has become the number one uh, most used language in the world. And I think a lot of that is attributed uh, and for those of you who don't know, uh, there are various programming languages you can use. Um, and it's becoming more and more popular that Python, which was at one point not as popular, uh, is becoming a leading language in the world. And I think a lot of that is attributed to how easy it is to do machine learning type stuff with Python. Yeah, I think... When it comes to uh, Python's popularity, I think one of the biggest reasons it's so popular is that it's free and relatively easy to learn. Um, now, the machine learning stuff is kind of a chicken and the egg kind of thing because these machine learning packages could have been written in any language. Right. Right. And there are. There are many lang you know, machine learning pa packages written in other languages. Uh, it's just that people have gravitated towards Python. And uh, like I said, I think it comes back to it's easy to learn it's freely available um yeah and yeah i i, I would consider it an important skill set if you're a student aspiring to be in any type of quantitative field i would encourage um you to you know to learn python uh at least at some programming language for sure uh python seems to be the hot one right now yes yeah yeah it's it's I, I, I think with Python, a big part of it is ease of use. I think a lot of it is just ease of use. It's so easy to pick up when you compare it to something, some other programs uh, that you might use. And I won't start dropping a bunch of names because that wouldn't be helpful to, to most listeners. But there are a lot of programs out there that are free to use, just like Python. Um, in fact, there are programs out there that are not as computationally intensive. So they don't take as much uh, computing power to use and they're... And some people prefer those, but Python for, for the faults that you could name, it's ease of use. The way that the program is structured makes it really, really easy to just jump in and start learning. And I think that the barriers to entry for some of these other programs is immense. I've been working uh, with, with a certain program, uh, C and C++. I've been working with these programs for, for, for two months now in my most recent position. And I, can't, I still, like, it's still tough to wrap your head around it. Python, yeah. you learn Python so quickly. And and it's so easy to start implementing your own ideas in Python. 
And after two months of working with, with a different program, I still look at stuff and I'm like, what is this? Like I've never, <sighs> I've never seen this done this way before. I don't know what it's doing, but with Python, I, I just feel that it's like a, it's, it's like a book. It's like readable. You can read it as you follow through. And I think that that, that is part of the reason that Python has grown so popular as well. Yeah, I remember when I was learning it, and I was thinking to myself the entire time, boy, I wish this was my first language. Like I was back in the days of Pascal when I was learning to code, and uh, Pascal was fine, you know. Uh, but boy, I I would have, I think I would have found Python easier. It's really hard though to look back on that because once you learn how to code in one language, um, pick, I find picking them up to be, I don't want to say easy, but easier, right? Because yeah. you sort of know you can, you've already. T- been taught how to think like a computer algorithm right and so now you're asking yourself well how do you just do this in this language or how do you do this in this language or what's the way to do this in, in this language and um so it's hard for me to know whether i would have had an easier time with learning python first or if i would have struggled just as much the first time around it's just that i happened to learn python 20 years after i learned my first language um you know it's, it's hard to know but i i suspect i would have found it easier to learn um, than, than the, the early languages that I had uh, had to learn in my computer science courses. I see. I mentioned I want to go back to it. Uh, this is this is very interesting to me in, in your field. This idea of studying EKG or, or ECG readouts, uh, electrocardiograph or electrocardiogram, I think is the the, the meaning of the acronym. And the, and this is some device that um, you, you you get put on when you're at the hospital, and it. It reads the polarization of your blood in your heart, right? So the blood, as it pumps through, gets polarized and depolarized. And uh, this creates the ability for some monitor that's set on your chest or wherever else in your body to read the electrical output of your heart. And so it can, in that way, monitor your beats. How is your heart beating? Is it beating fast? Is it beating slow? Is it beating irregularly? Uh, And this has been something studied in, in your field, and I'm very interested to hear uh, the, the, the results, the methodology, what, what, what was the idea behind studying EKG readouts? Yeah. So for, uh, I've been hearing, um, through the literature and various talks that I've been to about the potentially chaotic nature of, um, uh, various processes that go on in the heart and dictate, uh, you know, fibrillation, what's a healthy heart and what's an unhealthy heart, so on and so forth. And a possible idea that chaotic dynamics might be involved in distinguishing healthy from unhealthy hearts. And so it's something that I was just sort of interested in looking into. And in about, I think it was 2016, I um, published a paper with some student co-authors and a, and a statistician at Lake Homing that looked at, um, EKG data from people with various different heart conditions. So a, a, a healthy, regular sinus uh, rhythm, and then there was ventricular fibrillation, uh, atrial fibrillation. There were various other um, tachycardia, different different conditions. The list doesn't really matter, but there were just patients with different types of, of, of heart problems. And what we did to try to distinguish, um, well, I should I should take a step back. Our, one of our goals was to see if we could distinguish. Um, the patients by their time series, their EKG time series. Could we look at the time series and say, this person is healthy. This person has ventricular tachycardia. This person has atrial fibrillation, you know, so on and so forth. And um, it turned out that was hard. You know, of course it's hard. It's it's medicine. Medicine's hard. Uh, But the approach that we took was, is interesting. 
uh, we decided to use a network approach, which had been done by um, some um, folks earlier. Um, and what we did is we basically took the time series and mapped it to a network. Now, a network you can think of as, in the simplest form, little dots with lines connecting the dots showing relationships. So Facebook's a great example of a network, right? You're friends with people. So you're a dot in the Facebook network and you have lines coming out of your dot that connect to each of your friends, each of your friends of which are a dot. And if you look at these connections, you can say a lot about these different types of networks. Um, networks abound all over our society. We've got, you know, the power grid is a famous one, social networks, so on and so forth. So through some somewhat complicated mathematical means, we mapped the um, time series of the EKG to a network. And then we asked ourselves, how is this network connected? We, we looked at a connectivity measure uh, in the network. And what we had found was that there were uh, differences in the connectivity of the network between healthy and unhealthy patients. Now, this involved a lot of really high-end statistical analysis that our statistician, um, Dr. Gene Sperkini, was b- largely in charge of. I was sort of the guy that was uh, mapping uh, time series to networks, and he was handling quite a bit of the statistical interpretation. And But what we found was essentially that there was a statistic, statistically significant difference between the healthy hearts and the unhealthy hearts in this particular network measure. Uh, but a quick, quick Google search, you know, time series EKG or chaos and EKG will lead to tons of papers of people talking about sort of the nonlinear nature of heart dynamics. And obviously understanding the human heart is an absolutely important, you know, aspect of medicine. It's, you know, no, if your heart's not working well, you're, you're not, you're not in good shape, you know? And, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, I wonder if, uh, this, this, this mechanism of study could be implemented in real time uh, and if it could be improved upon. So it would be great if you found what you thought you could find, which is that you could find specific patterns that lead to different types of heart problems, right? Because that would be so useful in the world of medicine, right? So a patient comes in, you hook them up to an EKG, the EKG automatically tells you what the problem, what the patient's problem is based off the beating of their heart. That's very useful. What's interesting is I wonder if doctors already have that built in. If they've seen so much of this stuff, if, if say, someone attending an, an emergency room has seen so many EKG readouts that they have the ability to do some of that um, just by looking at it. And, and I don't mean automatically determine what the, the illness is, but to determine the difference between healthy heart and unhealthy heart. Uh, if that's just oh, I would, fundamentally I would built into them. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not a I'm not a cardiologist, so I really can't speak for the field. But I, I based on my own personal experiences in the field, I would expect so. Yes. Uh, yeah. But I think I think where I think where these methodologies come into play uh, are kind of twofold. One borderline cases uh, where, you know, maybe it's difficult to tell. Right. Uh, I think that would probably be an important plan. Again, I'm not a cardiologist, so I'm really speaking outside of my um, expertise here, but yeah, I think that's a, that's okay. I, I talk about shit that I have no idea about all the time <laughs> and I sound, yeah. and, and, and when I do it, I sound perfectly confident. So it's okay. Yeah. I, and I think, you know, the automation of medicine would be another place where, um, that would be um, valuable and whether or not 
we want to consider automated medicine a good thing. Certainly, maybe in poorer areas where you don't have an abundance of cardiologists, you might want to have such a machine that, you know, you put a several leads on the body and then all of a sudden, you know, the heart machine spits out, you know, congratulations, you have a healthy sinus rhythm. Um, I can tell you, I, I haven't read this paper myself, but I heard mention of it in another podcast. It's, it's one of the to be read lists that continuously grow yeah. uh, with time that there was a neural network. A neural network is a um, algorithm for machine learning, if you will. And they had trained this neural network to successfully detect, I think it was, uh, I want to say, it was a heart condition. I don't remember off the top of my head. And this is terrible. I'm a scientist. I should know these things. Um, but they were able to detect this specific heart condition um, at a rate more successfully than the cardiologists. This was a single lead um, EKG, which is not clinical. They usually use more than that. So this is yeah. sort of a, a toy kind of thing. It doesn't um, have immediate practical application because it's not clinical. Right. But it was interesting that it started to perform, you know, as well as, or in some cases, better than some of the, um, you know, the human cardiologists that were doing the diagnosis. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, uh, it's very interesting. Uh, it's, it's the, it speaks to the power of these sorts of algorithms to use computers to do things that humans can do, but they do it remarkably better because they have um, a level of precision that the human being doesn't have. Yeah, absolutely. And without, you know, it's, it's interesting, too, because some of the literature uh, is machine learning. I've been dabbling in machine learning for the last year. I'm still very much a novice. But some of the literature that I've been coming across is, you know, trying to understand uh, these algorithms, how they work, and when is it appropriate to use one type of machine learning algorithm over another. Success is, is in some ways, outpaced understanding. And right. if... In, in some cases, that's probably okay. Like, you know, if you want to distinguish a cat picture from a dog picture on the internet, um, yeah, that's, maybe that's fine. You know, it's not a life or death situation. But when we start talking about using neural networks to diagnose heart conditions, then I think we damn well better have a pretty solid understanding of what that neural network is doing and, and uh, why would you choose a neural network over a random forest, for example, which would be another type of, of, of classification algorithm in machine learning. Why, you know, why would you do that? And I'm not sure if it's there yet. I, uh, it could be, and I'm not aware of it. Like I said, I'm still a novice, but from what I've been reading lately, I'm not sure that it's quite there yet. It's very, very useful. I think our understanding has um, not kept up with the successes. So, so do you think there's two parts of this um, in, in your novice mind? Do you think, because this is what immediately comes to my mind, is that there's actually people out there who really fundamentally understand these things, how they work. The computer scientists, they know every, they can tell you everything. They can tell you every type of algorithm, how it works, how it does what it does. And then there's the people who actually put it into practice. And do you think that those two communities are not meshing? Is that the reason that we have people who are practicing but not understanding and people who are understanding but not practicing? Or do you think everyone's in the boat of using it but not understanding it? Um... Oh, I think that there are people who definitely understand the algorithms. I mean, I've, I've been reading books teaching these algorithms, and I think we understand the algorithms well. I think where the challenge comes in is the actual application. So, you know, when to expect good results from this type of application? How's the best way to train this particular application? Um, I think there are a lot of questions and execution that are still out there. Yeah. 
Uh, and that's sort of my impression. Again, still very much a novice, and there's a whole swath of literature I'm sure I'm unfamiliar with as I've been dabbling. My interests have been um, largely in using machine learning to uh, understand time series data. And there's been recently a paper last year published by, and this was the one by uh, Jadeep uh, Pathka, uh, who I uh, misattributed earlier. And they had uh, essentially trained a type of machine learning algorithm called a reservoir computer. And what they trained it on was a chaotic time series. And they were able to predict future values up to a point. Right. The predictions broke down, which you would expect for a chaotic series, but the predicted series continued to behave like the chaotic system. Interesting. And so, so did they find periodicity in chaos? Is that they did not? They found the aperiodic behavior that you expect from chaos. In fact, um, uh, the predicted series, uh, even after it stopped matching the original series that they used to train the algorithm, it still behaved like the system that generated the series. So this was a series that they numerically generated with a model. The Lorenz equations are a very famous chaotic set of equations in nonlinear dynamics. And they generated time series from this um, set of equations. And then they said, all right, take the first chunk of the time series and train this reservoir computer. They trained the reservoir computer uh, and then said, okay, after you're done training, predict the future values. So, quote unquote, future. They had already made this really long time series, right? right. They took like you know maybe a chunk of it. Let's just say half, okay, mm -hmm. to train. And so, well, can you predict the second half? And it turned out it could predict for a little while, and then the predictions kind of were falling apart. But the predicted series still behaved like the original series. So uh, that if you look at it visually, they would look very similar, I see. right? Um, and then on top of that, they measured some statistics, some nonlinear statistics from the predicted series, and they found that they were quite similar to um, the uh, original series as well. So the machine learning algorithm, the reservoir computer, seems to have learned the underlying physics that was producing the data. I see. Now, that's the interesting part, and that's the part that scares people, I think, uh, when we talk about machine learning and when we talk about eventually down the rabbit hole, when we talk about AI, that these are the types of things that scare people so much, is knowing that a machine, in what I would call a primitive stage, machine learning is by no means fully evolved, right? We're, we're continuing to evolve these algorithms, continuing to get better at, at, at implementing them, and learning how to implement them is a big part in that, learning what to expect, what not to expect. Uh, it scares people. It scares people to know that a computer with a minimal amount of input, can do a better job than you at most of the things you do. And and I, I like to walk around and pretend that I'm invincible, right, and pretend that, oh, no one can do what I do. A computer might be able to, to solve the math that I solve, but a computer can't think like I think. Uh, but there are aspects that that is untrue, right? It's just me being ignorant. Because if you look at the, um, the instance you were talking about earlier with the machine learning algorithm being able to perform just on this test case, a little bit better than, than actual cardiologists. Uh, that A cardiologist probably walks around thinking they're invincible. They spend a decade in school, their job isn't going anywhere, but then a machine learning algorithm comes along and it can do what they do, but it can do it better. In a, t in a test case, of course. I'm not, I'm not saying that the cardiologists are getting fired. 
but this is uh, something that that's scares people. Uh, this idea that you have a computer that is doing your work and it is doing it better than you. And we've already seen this, right? We've seen this in factories across the, the world. We've seen a lot of people don't realize this, but it's not China stealing your jobs. It's not Mexico stealing your jobs. It's computers stealing your jobs. Uh, and, and it's also stealing the jobs of the Chinese people. It's also stealing the jobs of the Mexican people. Um, and and that's a scary thought for people to know that uh, that computers are out performing you no matter what it is that you do in your life. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, and I can definitely understand why people would be scared. Change is scary. Uh, I take a slightly different approach. I, I see it as liberating. Uh, you know, here's an example, right? Uh, think about back in the seventies when pocket calculators appeared Okay. and uh, people are like, Oh, well, you don't know how to do math. If you can't, you know, um, you know, do basic arithmetic, blah, 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 so on and so forth. But in some ways, it's kind of liberating because now instead of, you know, having to be able to work out these long divisions by hand, right, we can save time using this calculator and I can focus on higher level math, learning right. higher level math. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I'm about to say might be controversial in some circles, but I see this similar to um, computer algebra systems. Um, so some of the listeners may be familiar with computer algebra systems like Mathematica, Maple, Sage Math. What these actually allow a person to do is um, bypass uh, involved algebraic uh, um, calculations, manipulations of symbols and things like that. Because you can tell the computer to solve an equation for you. You can tell the computer to do the derivative from calculus for you, so on and so forth. Yes. And, you know, some, and then there's definitely a camp of people who are, you know, concerned about it. Well, you know, if you rely on the computer to do this, then who, who, who does the math, right? Yeah. But I see it as, okay, now I can use this computer to assist me with grunt work, right? Yes. And I can now focus on analysis, higher level thinking, higher level math that the computer can't do right now. Yes. Um, and so I see it as a tool for uh, very no, – we're not different at all from a pocket calculator. So machine learning could hopefully be the same kind of thing for us, right? We can take the mundane tasks that we, we, we don't need to be doing and then in an ideal world, which of course we don't live in, but give me a chance to be philosophical here, <laughs> um, we could you know, have people doing creative pursuits or you know, other – higher level activities if we can get the, the the computers to do sort of the lower level stuff that's just taking up our time and and you know i could see it as an improvement of the quality of life now there are lots of sociological and economic questions that come into involved that i will certainly not just sweep under the rug they're real things you know um, you know, if a person doesn't have a job, where do they get their meaning or where do they get their value from? Right. Yes. Uh, economically, do you want, you know, the owners of the machines to have all the money? Well, you can't do that because you if our current economy anyway, you've got to have people buying stuff. Yes. You got to yes. go out and buy that iPhone 10 when it, or 11 when it comes out or whatever they're going to call it. And um, if you have nobody working and the only people who are making money are the people who own the machines, then you're not going to have much of an economy. Right. Yes. And so, uh, I think there are a lot of sociological, a lot of economic questions to be involved, but I tend to be an optimist with these kind of things. And yeah. I think if we can make the right decisions, if we can be careful with how we move forward, 
And I know the human race has not got a good track record of doing that. It's so bad. We yeah. We're so if, bad at moving forward. Yeah. But if we can, right, there's a lot of promise here. Yes. No, I uh, agree with you. I, I agree with you. But but uh, the, the points you brought up are spectacular points. This is a, a problem that will involve a lot, a lot of thinking. You have to think out these decisions before you do them. Uh, you cannot, what well, you can, you can implement machines that, that put 20,000 people out of jobs. You can do that just fine, but you have to consider the impacts of doing so. And you also have to consider an alternative, right? Where are people to go? One of the things I love is the internet exists. All right. And because the internet exists, any one, and I do believe this, any single person can find their passion and they can probably make money doing it on the internet. Because you have an untapped audience of billions of people. It, if you like weaving baskets, if you like playing guitar, for example, you're, you're an avid guitar player. Uh, if you like podcasting, if you like making music, if you like exercising, no matter what it is, there's an outlet on the internet for you to be yourself and to make money doing it. And I don't think that that those jobs are jobs that machines can take. I don't think anyone would sit down and watch a machine play video games against other machines. But I think the human element is very interesting. And a lot of people sit sit in front of their computers and watch videos of people playing video games against other people. And these are the types of jobs that will exist. These these creative jobs, jobs that require the human creativity, not the skills, not the grunt work, right? The, the McDonald's jobs are eventually going to dry up. The factory jobs are going to dry up no matter how much uh, certain administrations want to bring them back. Uh, the, the coal mining jobs are going to dry up. But what will not dry up is human creativity and the ability to profit from it. Uh, do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I think so. Now, I have to say, I have watched um, videos of computers playing video games. There have been some machine learning models that have been trained to play Super Mario Brothers and things like that. So, <laughs> uh, Were they playing against uh, – did they have a personality? Oh, no, of course no. not. It was, it was a, it was a, it, there wasn't much sound other than the actual gaming sounds involved. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but no, I get, I get, I get your point. Uh, yeah. And I think, um, I think there'll always be a, or I should say, I think there'll be a place for service positions for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. But they will, they will become, they will become phased out eventually, or at least the numbers that we employ will become, will dwindle over time, I think. Um, but that's, that's a changing world, right? You have to, you have to constantly adapt. You have to constantly improve yourself. And that, well, that's, that's not just the mark of a changing economy. That's the mark of, of how you should live your entire life. Oh, totally. I mean, I, my research interests, uh, and what I do professionally has evolved over, and I've only been doing this job for 14 years. Yeah. Uh, I go, I've been, I guess it was, started graduate school in uh, 2099. So I guess I've been, you know, a physicist, quote unquote, since for 19 years. But um, but yeah, I mean, what I was doing for my dissertation is, is quite different than what I'm doing right now. I've evolved with changing interests, changing demands, what's quote unquote marketable. In other words, what do other scientists want to read? Right. right? Uh, what would be publishable? Uh, and I think that, that holds true with most other positions. Um, that's a that's a key trait for I think anybody, scientist or not, is the ability to grow personally and make sure that, you know, you're able to keep up with uh, the changing times. The 
The question, of course, is what happens to those who can't or don't. Now, this is this is a science podcast, so we don't need to get into those sociological right. questions. But uh, I think ultimately, when bringing it back to um, machine learning in complex systems, uh, we definitely ne- needed to f- start thinking about these things yesterday, right? That's yeah. the, that's the say it goes, yeah. right? We yeah. can't because these are not um, just your factory jobs that we're talking about. We're used to thinking of robots taking factory jobs, right? We've been thinking we've been used to, for for decades now. Uh, but what we're not thinking, we're not used to thinking about our machine learning algorithms taking the jobs away from doctors and lawyers and scientists, even. Yeah. You know, uh, and uh, do we have machine learning algorithms smart enough to to figure out physics of complicated systems? And if we do, then what do our scientists do, right? Um, it's and, and again, we could be. Uh, too optimistic. It might turn out that, yeah, while these things have early promise, they don't quite pan out, right. you know, yes. in the long term. Yes. And there's a long list of technology that sort of played out that way, you know, in human history, or things looked promising, just didn't quite take yeah. off uh, for one reason or another. So, yeah, I think we are at the precipice of a potential revolution with machine learning. Um, and I don't think we fully understand uh, all the potential outcomes. And it's really hard because if we look at just, for example, economic outcomes, and that's only one small slice of what we're talking about, the economy is a complex system, right? And um, like I mentioned before, a complex system is typically, you know, one way to model it is a bunch of agents interacting randomly, but they lead to unexpected large events like, you know, financial crises, economic collapses or Mm. booms, bubbles. Right. And they're really hard to predict. And what we know about these complex systems is that they're typically so strongly interrelated that if you sort of tug on one thread, you know, the whole sweater starts to unravel in places you'd never expect. Right. Um, And, you know, there's, there's these deep, interconnected relationships that uh, only become obvious when they start to fail. And so we have to be really careful when we start, you know, digging around with complex systems and the sociology of, of, of machine learning and jobs, the economics of machine learning and jobs. And unfortunately, I think the only way we're going to learn is just by doing it. Yeah. And that's scary. Yeah. Right? No, no, no. I agree with you though. I, I agree that, and that's true for any change that has ever existed in the history of society at large. I think uh, there's there's no way to predict how something will. That, that's why I think that um, that's why I think that government has, in a sense, uh, stag- and oh, by the way, this this isn't a, a purely science outlet, right? I'm happy to talk about any bullshit that that comes up, and I'm happy to uh, talk about things that I'm not qualified to talk about because I do it constantly, uh, but. I think that that's one of the reasons that government has stagnated. I think that people are acknowledging the fact that we live in a chaotic system and that if you make changes to that chaotic system, things will happen that you didn't intend to happen, right? So there might be a lot of legislation out there that's made with good intent, but there was something that wasn't accounted for. And it's, and it's not even necessarily something that that person could have known existed. It is just, again, you tug on the string of the sweater and the whole thing unravels. That exists in a lot of legislation. That exists in a lot of places across the world. 
you make a subtle change and you don't know the drastic impact it can have. Uh, it's like uh, this is a, there's a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil, cause a, a hurricane in the Atlantic, right? Uh, these sorts of ideas. Do small changes lead to big drastic changes over time? Uh, and the answer is yes. We see systems all the time that are like that. You make a tiny change somewhere and drastic things will happen across the world. Um, one of the things that I'm interested in in regards to this changing economic landscape that, that are due to machines, because I agree with you when you say that we don't know the impact machine learning will have. It's possible that it's not the the golden goose that we think it is. But undoubtedly, I think it's safe to say that automation is going to continue. Uh, okay. and, and it's not necessarily that we're going to be using machine learning more. Uh, it's just that we're always going to be trying to implement automation where we can. We're always going to try to to not pay as many people as we can or to make things more efficient. Um, and so one of the, the concepts that's been brought up, and I think it's been implemented by other world governments, but it hasn't been implemented long enough to, to analyze its effects, is this idea of giving a universal basic income. The idea of essentially giving out uh, a, a basic income, like, I don't know, $13,000 or what have you, uh, to every citizen and saying, now you have enough money to live on. Okay, well, you won't be living a fantastic life by any means, and you probably still need some supplemental income. But now you are going to at least be able to pay your rent and maybe eat. Okay, on top of that. And I think that that is one of those things that we, on the surface, it looks like a good idea, right? And, and a lot of people say it'll breed creativity. You'll have a lot more local businesses, right? You'll have you'll have the, the stay-at-home mom that's like, yes, now I'm going to use my $13,000 to open up a bakery that I've always wanted to open up. Now I'm going to use my $13,000 to buy podcasting equipment and start a podcast or, or buy equipment to start recording video games or what have you. And so you'll have a lot more people exploring the creative process. Now in practice, we don't know, right? And that's every legislation in the history of forever. We just don't know how it, how it will, will turn out. But I think that that is one interesting idea to solve this automation crisis, is that you give people the means to stay alive and allow their creativity to take them the rest of the way. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an idea that has um, attracted my attention uh, as of late. I am currently working with an economist to model wealth distributions in simple economies. So we do a very simple economic model. These are called BDY models. Uh, first, um, I can't remember the year they were first developed. I believe they were in the 90s. They were rediscovered in 2000 by two physicists, I think, working at Maryland. And the basic idea is um, you have a group of, of people in this population that you model, and then they exchange money at random. So Every round, everybody who has a dollar um, gives somebody else a dollar at random. Okay. And it turns out that if you do this, um, and I'll, I'll get to the universal basic income idea here in yeah. a minute, but it turns out if you do this, um, what you get as a wealth distribution isn't the flat distribution that you'd expect because you'd think, well, if everyone's just exchanging dollars at random, then you know if you wait long enough, you have everyone with the same amount of money, right? Because right. it's all being exchanged at random. Well, it turns out that's not what you get. It turns out what you get is uh, what's called exponential distribution. In other words, you have a very few, very, very few, very wealthy people and a whole bunch of poor people. All right? yeah. 
and uh, kind of sounds familiar, right? Yes, very. Uh, now, we're d- definitely not claiming that this is a, a anywhere near an accurate economic model for our, our current economy. Uh, but what it does is it, it does capture a property. It captures a, a similar uh, wealth distribution. Not the same, but, you know, something that visually appears to be similar. Yeah. And so some of the work that I've been doing now is building off of some previous work on tax, what they call tax and redistribution, TAR, models. And um, these TAR models basically collect a tax and redistribute it uh, to the general population to see how it changes the wealth uh, uh, distribution of that population. And so right now I'm working with an economist um, on this particular model, and we're trying various um, strategies of, of taxing and redistributing to see how we can affect the overall um, Gini coefficient of the particular economic uh, system. So Gini coefficient is a measure of how uh, fairly or I should say uniformly wealth is distributed. It's zero if everyone has the same amount of money and it turns out to take a value of one if one person has all the money and everybody else is, is nothing. Right. And so we're looking at various tax and redistribution methods to see how how does the wealth distribution affected uh, by these these methods in this economy. And again, we're not claiming um, that the model is you know, the same as what's going on in reality. The, the actual global economy is a highly complex system where a simple random exchange of money is simply not going to capture, right, um, how, uh, how money is transferred. Plus, we're not even including material wealth. We're just talking about money. Right. Uh, we're not talking about, like, you know, gold or oil or, or all these other things that we can give value to and, mm-hmm. and trade. It's, we're capturing a very small thing. Uh, but as George Box once said, famous statistician, all models are wrong, but some models are useful. I love that saying. And um, it's, it's, so this model, very, very wrong, yeah. but it could be very useful. And, and and so we've made some progress. We've seen a couple of trends here and there. I don't want to uh, divulge anything right now uh, just because it's still an ongoing project. And you know how with research, sometimes you think something is true and then all of a sudden the next day you run another analysis and – Yes. Um, you found your understanding wasn't quite what you thought it would be. Yes. But we are seeing trends. We are seeing changes. We are seeing strategies that work better than others. Um, and so this idea of a tax redistributed universal basic income seems like it could work. But again, it's not just when we're talking about these types of systems, it's it's not a good idea to break them up by field, right? Universal basic income is not an economics problem. It's an economics problem and a sociology problem, yes. a problem in finance, a, po- a problem in policy, a problem in politics. And, and it's just, I think one of the things that people fail to recognize is how complex and how interrelated our systems are. We did not evolve to be in the world that we built for ourselves, right? We evolved for the world of there's a tiger, I better run, right? Very simple input-output relationships, right? I find food, I, I, I eat. I don't find food, I starve. Like that's, that's what we're talking about, you know, hunter-gatherer. I'm sure anthropologists would probably take somewhat of a, a <laughs> an issue with that particular level of description, but – the point is the level of complexity that we have is is very, very different than what we had, you know, 100, 200 years ago, much less 250,000 years ago, right? And it's really easy to underestimate 
those interconnected relationships. And I, and I think that when we start dealing with problems like universal basic income or like climate change um, or poverty, uh, you know, we have to keep in mind the complexity. That should not, by the way, be an excuse to do nothing, right? Oh, well, we can't possibly know all the effects. We can't do anything, right? I think what it should be it, for scientists is a red flag, proceed with caution, and I think this is where um, physicists and applied mathematicians can really contribute to these fields. We have the expertise in modeling. We have the expertise in mathematics. Um, we have the expertise in uh, programming, coding. And we can uh, work with interdisciplinary teams like I'm doing right now with our, um, the economists and and do what I think is is not just important work, but also very interesting work. Um, that's not to say, you know, discovering the latest particle or the newest star is not interesting. Uh, I think it's interesting and important work too. Uh, however, I get the most satisfaction out of working in um, collaboration with others who are not physicists, who are not mathematicians, who are people who are um, looking at solving "Quote unquote real world problems." Right, real, right. right. Well, it uh, makes sense that you that you that you like that because you you like these chaotic systems. You like to study. There's no better implementation of chaos in the world we live in than the interactions of human beings. Uh, there's no thing that's more you know. If you ever if you ever talk to your wife, you should see that there's chaos in every single one of us. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> we're all very chaotic, uh, and so. Uh, when we interact, that chaos just amplifies. Um, and there's nothing against Gale, Chris. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Just, just you know, um, every every wife across the spectrum has some chaos going on. But but we do too, though. So it's not. There's nothing uh, sexist going on here. There's no uh, Me Too movement happening in the uh, state of the universe. But nevertheless, uh, yes, chaos. It exists. It exists everywhere. Um, well, it does, but you know, I would, I would, uh, I would caution you to, to be aware of the difference between chaos and randomness. Yes, I should be. Yeah, because uh, a lot of things are just random. Right. Right. Uh, and and so chaos is a very specific, special uh, behavior. Uh, and just because something maybe is unpredictable or highly correlated or, or, or very um, difficult to sort of suss out what's going on, doesn't necessarily mean it's chaotic. Right. It could just be really, really, you know, weird deterministic behavior, or it could be, it could just be random. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, I always tell people to be careful because in the word chaos, it sounds like craziness, like because of the, the English definition, but then yeah. there's the math definition, right? What we need when a scientist is chaotic and they can be different things. So yes, uh, always be careful with that. Oh, I will, I will be sure to jot it down and, and be, I always, I've always, I've been in contact with you for four years. You were one of my undergraduate professors uh, and my advisor actually. And I have messed it up every time. It's oh, I, st- I this, still do sometimes. Yeah. I have to be careful. Yeah. It's just, oh. uh, you know, it's it's the English language. It'll get you. Um, it, it's just I, syntax. It's, it's yeah. Yeah, the problem that I've run into is actually um, 
when, you know, in, in conversational English, people are expecting me to use the word chaotic when I, and I actually use random because it actually right. is random and not chaotic, yeah. but uh, what, what do you mean random or, or, or heaven forbid the word stochastic, which is also random, but it's yes. more like all the mathy yes. term, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, stochastic isn't in the, the, uh, the everyday vocabulary. And so I have to, I think all scientists run into this, right? The whole idea of theory, what we mean by theory is not uh, a crapshoot of an idea um, off yes. the top of your head, right? It's, it's a very well-defined thing. Um, but yeah, so, but I agree, um, you know, complex systems, nonlinear behaviors are everywhere. They are not intuitive. And when you have a system that is complex and, uh, you, you need to tread with caution. Yeah. It's not, it's not going to be the simple intuitive answers do not necessarily have much practical value. Right. Uh, sometimes they do. Sometimes they sometimes intuitive, you know, quick answer sometimes does have value. But for many cases, when you're dealing with these systems, um, we're just like I said, we didn't evolve to work with these things. Right. Yet we can. That's the amazing thing, I think, about the human mind and the amazing thing about mathematics. The human mind, you know, basically has wrapped its head around mathematics, whether it's invented or discovered. We'll let the philosophers argue with that. The fact is we have it. And it's this amazing tool that we can use to describe the world around us. And if you think about it carefully, it just shouldn't be. Right. Like, why, yeah. why math? Why why do these things work so well? I don't have any answers, by the way. I, I don't know anybody who does. But Yeah. No, um, I, I, it's, it's, it's very interesting um, that we're able to use math to, to put to you to, sorry, I'm sorry, by the way, for the for the listeners, if it sounds like I live in Iraq, because there's some stuff going on outside my window today. See, when you live in Rochester, uh, it's a very interesting place. It's like on the border of Canada, right? So you get really nice people, you get into Canada, but you also get really New York type people. And so Rochester is like if you if you if you walk down the street and uh, you you get shot, right? Uh, which happens quite often. So if you get shot, but there's always going to be a Canadian guy nearby to to patch you up or to give you an organ. And so there's a lot of shootings here, but there's not many deaths because there's, they were so close to Canada that people have that, that Canadian niceness to them. And, and I don't know what's going on out there today, but nevertheless, I hear police cars and, and, and various things, but, uh, I think they stopped. And so I think there was probably a, a, a native Ontarian nearby who, uh, donated some, some organs, uh, for the cause. But nevertheless, uh, what were we talking about? I'm getting distracted by all this uh, sound. Oh, we were talking about complexity in a relationship, but then I, I totally lost track after you started mentioning about the, the war zone in which you uh, to, to claim to live in. Yes. So, uh, I mean, I live yeah. in a beautiful part of the city, but uh, but every now and again, you know, you still have some 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 chaos. Going. And then the English definition of chaos, you have some chaos going on, on outside. Um, and I don't know if you could even hear. I don't know. It sounded like bombs were dropping outside my apartment building. Oh, wow, no, I okay. up well, it's so good hopefully then. the listeners so, haven't yeah. either. Yeah. So maybe I'm just, uh, it could be that I'm just making this up uh, for the purposes of, of whatever, but it sounds like it's gone. I, th I think they were doing some construction or, or something, but nevertheless, uh, yes. Yeah, so neural networks, which you mentioned earlier, right, are, are so important in today's world of advertising, right? Because... Uh, it seems like this is, this is weird. All right. So I will talk about something that's completely unrelated to me, like cat food, right? I'll talk about cat food. I don't have a cat. 
I think you have a cat. I think I see the cat in the background. Uh, I have a dog, but... Uh, Did I not see a cat? shouldn't be visible. Okay. Uh, if, if there's a cat in my house, <laughs> it would be a surprise to me. I swear I saw a cat earlier. <laughs> okay, whatever. Uh, nevertheless, um, yes, yeah, so it seems like if I talk about cat food and I get on my phone and I scroll down on Facebook, I will get an ad for cat food. It's actually really interesting. Have you ever seen any of these videos out there of people testing this idea? Facebook insists that they do not listen to you or that they do not record you and selectively advertise to you. But there's videos of people doing this exact thing. They're like, okay, I'm going to talk about something completely unrelated to me. They have a whole conversation about, I don't know, uh, water, bottled water. And then they'll get an advertisement to, to buy bottled water on Facebook. Uh, it's very interesting. And and I think it comes down to the idea of a click stream. Are you familiar with a click stream? I've heard the term, but uh, I think it'd be good to... Okay, so a click stream is this, um, this essentially like portfolio that surrounds you, you on the internet. So you're on the internet, you have an IP address, and you use that IP address to click on various things, right? If you want to get a good example of your click stream, actually, if you go on your, your Google Chrome uh, homepage, you'll have like eight websites you visit often. Mm-hmm. Right. That's like a, that's essentially like a portfolio that it describes you as a human being. Um, for me, it's like MMA news websites. It's like ESPN, YouTube, emails and, and some science websites. So they have a really definitive thing to advertise to me. Um, and click streams are like, are like you're jumping through a neural network. All right. So you're on the internet and you, you, you have an IP address. And, uh, and each cell in the neural network is, is a website or a theme per se. And the, the algorithms will detect what theme you jump to from what theme. So what lines on the neural network do you walk along? And it will use these predictive measures to advertise to you. Okay. So do you go on YouTube and then do you immediately go to ESPN or something like this? Or do you go on YouTube and then you immediately jump to Facebook? Um, and it will use the information that you got off of YouTube, say you were watching videos about video games, to then selectively advertise to you when you go to Facebook. And so it's like these advertisers are following along on your clickstream as you walk along the path that you create on the internet and selectively advertising to you the things that it wants you to see. And it's so very mystical to me sometimes. But this is one of those those applications in in this in the inner space in the interwebs uh, that that you essentially have a profile built, right? So advertisers have a profile for you. That's why you, I don't know about you, but I get tons of spam emails, sure. spam emails from places that I've never been. Okay, but they are related to things that I do. If I go out to eat at a steakhouse and I give them my email address, I will then get steaks advertised to me on various social media on various websites and these sort of, and I use ad block so I guess I don't get many many advertisements but um, I think that that that's very interesting that that human beings almost all of us that use the internet have a portfolio and in that portfolio there are things that we like all right so we're always concerned with the the NSA and the the very the scandal that they were recording all of us and that they they know all about us but so do advertisers. And the advertisers know probably just as much. They might not know verbatim what you text people, okay? But they have a very, very good idea of what it is that you like. And they advertise to you accordingly. 
And they do it through the power of neural networks and through machine learning um, to, to learn about you as a person. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's probably several different types of machine learning algorithms going on, would be my guess. Um, there's If you look at machine learning, there's essentially, if you will, uh, two types of machine learning out there. There's supervised learning and there's unsupervised learning. And supervised learning would be um, somewhat related to the time series analysis stuff that I was talking to, where you send in a bunch of examples that are labeled. So let's say, for example, we're talking about the Internet and uh, – you want to identify cat pictures because who doesn't like pictures of cats, right? And so what you do is you basically send into the neural network, this type of machine learning algorithm, a whole bunch of pictures. And you say, you know, this picture is a cat. This picture is a dog. This picture is a cat. This picture is a person. This picture is a cat. This picture is a tiger. This picture is a cat. This picture is a horse, whatever, right? And you send millions or, or, or thousands, millions, whatever, of these pictures into the neural network. And the neural network learns to how, how to distinguish between a cat and everything else, Okay. Uh, and then there's unsupervised learning, which you can think of as clustering, which um, they don't have labels, but you're just looking for groups of data, data that's similar in one way to each other than the others, right? And and so, um, uh, for example, uh, simple clustering, and for astronomers that are listening, the HR diagram can be thought of as simple clustering, where you have main sequence stars and you have um, – giants and white uh, dwarfs, so on and so forth. But other sort of more down-to-earth clustering, for example, you could um, take a whole bunch of, of let's say, um, uh, women's measurements for shirts, okay? Uh, actually, let's do men's measurements because men's shirts are a bit easier. Uh, there's fewer different states for men's shirts, right? And, and so you put a whole bunch of, like, measurements of men's chests and uh, you know, torso and arms and whatnot into uh, a clustering algorithm. And the clustering algorithm will then look for trends and see, are there clusters, groups of data? And can we say, okay, this cluster is what we'll call small and we'll count, we'll take the mean of that cluster and that will be our quote unquote small shirt. Or maybe the median of that cluster, that will be our small shirt. And then another cluster we'll call medium, large, extra large, so on and so forth. I apologize if you can hear my dog. She's apparently looking at something fascinating outside. Um, so I would suspect that when it comes to the websites, it's probably clustering. Uh, it's following where you're going and it's establishing these clusters. And then it's probably looking at other people who have similar, like, who's in a similar cluster that you're in mm -hmm. and saying, okay, well, you know, these other people like, uh, let's say, you know, you listen to MMA. So these other people like this Kenpo Karate website that are in this cluster. So we're going to recommend that to you as well. I see. And that's kind of like a recommender. They call it recommender system. It's similar to like, um, uh, for example, Netflix, you know, the recommender systems, those yeah. kind of things. Yeah. I don't know specifically what algorithms Netflix uses to, to, to recommend, but that basic idea is there. Yeah. Um, it's very good. So, though. And what's yeah. interesting also about Netflix is they give you a percent match. Do you notice that? They'll give you yes. a, like a 97% yeah. match to other things sure. you like. And so, so, so then that brings up another topic. It's something you point out. There's two types of things. Uh, also machine learning, there's regression and classification. So the, the cat picture is the example of uh, classification. Regression is predicting a value from your data. Um, and one of the simplest regression algorithms, um, everybody who's been to high school would have done this, where you make a graph in your science class and you draw a best fit line. Yeah. 
right? That's linear regression, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, when you do it in high school, like at least when I was a kid, it was just break out the ruler and eyeball everything. But there's really a least squared algorithm that's going on if you do, like if you have Excel do this for you. Right. And, and they basically are training a line, right, mm-hmm. that you could then use to predict other values, yes. right? Um, and so I think when you talk about these, the percentile, I think there's a little bit of regression going on there too. It's to mm-hmm. what, uh, not just, not just the unsupervised classification, but also the regression of what, what's your probability of liking that particular, uh, movie. Yeah. And so when we talk about these click streams, yeah, there's a lot of machine learning going on in the background. They're watching your patterns and they can learn a lot about you. Um, one of the things that I've been doing to cut my teeth in uh, machine learning are Kaggle competitions. Kaggle is a website you can go to that has uh, large data sets and they have competitions. And then one of the things that you can do with it is to sharpen your data science skills. And the intro Kaggle competition right now is the Titanic data set. And so you get a list of names of passengers and various um, quantities about them might be the price they paid for a ticket, their boarding class, where they embarked, where, you know, how many children they have on board, so on and so forth, their name. Mm -hmm. And then that competition involves doing a machine learning algorithm, writing a machine learning algorithm, which will predict whether or not they survived the Titanic accident. Hmm. And it turns out. Is it based on something? You um, you can continue. I assume you're about to tell me. There's well-known rosters of who survived and who died in the Titanic. Right. Yeah. So they give you a training set of names and all their stats. Yeah, no, no, no. no I mean, is, it, is, it, is the survival rate based on some quality that they have? Well, yeah. So uh, I think my, my current score is 77%. 77% accurate in predicting whether or not somebody would survive. Okay. And uh, basically, if I remember correctly so far, my model included the person's title. So master, Mr., Mrs., or Miss. I pulled that out of the name data. Okay. Uh, I included the gender. I included, um, I want to say I included their, their class. So what class ticket did they buy? Okay. And I, there was two other, um, features that were available that talked about, um, basically, um, siblings and children that were involved with them. Okay. And, uh, I used those features and just those features alone, Right, seventy-seven percent accurate whether or not they were going to survive the Titanic. It's very interesting. I imagine the people with no kids had a higher survival rate because you got to like round up all the ducklings when you're trying to get off if you have kids, or or maybe it's the exact opposite and you say screw the kids and, and you uh, you save yourself. I I haven't gone through my actual results yet in detail, but I'm guessing that probably that would also matter with gender. Yes. Uh, that uh, a single woman with no kids may not have been as likely to survive as a woman with kids. I don't know that for sure. But again, there it's interesting because you have these sociological pressures, right? And these class pressures. uh, And you think of this as a really complicated thing, but you can get 77% accurate by looking at just a few stats. And it really, again, I don't want to get too deep into philosophy, but it really makes you wonder versus, you know, free will versus determinism, that kind of uh, issue. Um, but yeah, but definitely there people are out there are looking at these analytics and they're saying, you know, we're measuring this behavior on the web. How will this person vote or what car is this person going to buy? Yeah. And if you think about it, those two questions, they really aren't all that different. Right. Right. Because yes. either way, whether you're voting or you're buying a car, you're buying into a brand. Right. right. That's one way of looking at it. Yes. And and so the ability to tease out really 
complicated and not entirely obvious relationships is something that's really quite amazing that, you know, that these algorithms can do. It's shocking how they can tease out what you wouldn't even think, you know, uh, what, what do you mean? Like the, like, you know, the websites that I browse dictate what car I could buy or what phone I'll buy or, uh, whatever. Um, but yeah, you can, um, Yep. And there's also data stored in your, in your, your browsing, um, yep. capabilities that tell you what phone you're on or yeah. what operating system you use yeah. and, uh, what, what web browser you're using. Um, and all of this data is, and I am by no means a computer scientist or involved in, in any, any development of, of web pages. Um, but all of this data is somehow stored in, in the information that is passed along the web. Um, yeah, for people to see, and so and, and we're generating data at just an immense rate. I mm-hmm. remember reading a statistic at some point in time that, um, and I don't remember the date ranges off the top of my head, but at this point, you know, every few years we're now generating the, the new data that we're generating um, outpaces all the data that humanity has generated in its history, right? Yes, and and I think it's like five exabytes or something like that. It, the, the details don't matter. I'm being a bad scientist here, not knowing the it's... the dates and the the values. But the point is. We're generating new data at rates that are unprecedented for our species. Yes. And we're now just getting the technological capability of, of collecting and analyzing that data, processing that data, analyzing that data. And, uh, and I think that's exciting. It's also scary. It's extremely scary, right? But it's also exciting because it, it's going to allow us, again, being the optimist, to do things uh, in design of cities, in in, in 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 the economy, that we would never have guessed to be, um, you know, useful. Right. Yeah. Uh, I just thought about it since I was talking about um, people getting shot in Rochester. Uh, they have you? Do you know what Shot Spotter is? Have you heard of Shot Spotter? I have. I've I've heard of similar sites where they basically um, tell you like high crime neighborhoods in your city or or where crimes occur in yes. your city. Yeah, well, yeah. Shot Spotter is uh, it's very interesting. Um, there was actually an article on it in like the most recent Physics Today or, or whatever the APS publication or whatever is, um, and it was a uh, it's developed. It's a machine learning tool, and what it is is it's these devices that they put on uh, telephone poles around the city, and they automatically detect gunshots, and they automatically locate the gunshots. So they have them set up in different parts of the city and they can triangulate where a gunshot originated, send that information to the police and the police can respond in, in, in a time that is so much faster than if someone had to call the police and say, Hey, I, I heard a gunshot. It's very that, fascinating. That's interesting. Yeah. That's, and you know, these are the types of technologies we're developing. These are the technologies that we're going to have to be living with. Yes. Um, because, you know, and, and, and not to seem, you know, paranoid at all about this kind of thing, but what are the unintended consequences uh, of this technology? Uh, it might step up patrols in areas where, you know, um, shootings are more prevalent. But mm-hmm. then when you pull, because the police are a finite resource, when you pull those police officers from where they're normally patrolling to these new areas, what happens to those uh, areas Correct. They were before. Are are they going to become more crime prone? Or are they not? I don't know. I mean, who knows? And and unfortunately, I mean, we can do some modeling. There are modeling things that you can do to help 
you know, uh, make estimates of what could happen. But ultimately, yeah. I think with these systems, it's you try it, you find out, and mm-hmm. see what yeah. happens. I saw another application of this idea recently. Uh, there was a, a computer scientist, I think he was a computer scientist, and he, he had this idea, and he went to Brazil to, to test it out. He helped out some of the native tribes in, in the Brazil uh, rainforest. And uh, he took old cell phones, old cell phones that could uh, have Bluetooth or Wi-Fi connections. And he built these, these little devices that went up inside in top of trees. Okay. And what they would do is they would listen. They were solar powered. So the phone was always plugged in. It was always running. That's why it had to be in the top of the tree so it could reach the, the, the sunlight to, to stay on. And it would right. detect chainsaws in the distance. And so one of the problems with Brazil, Brazilian rainforest and these ancient tribes is that they still rely on such lush rainforests to survive. They still rely on the populations that exist within them to hunt and to eat. And there's a lot of deforestation, illegal deforestation happening in that area. And what this uh, device does, and, and they put a bunch of them up, is it automatically sends a signal to the tribe that there's a chainsaw running in a certain location. And that tribe can then react to that call the authorities and have the, the illegal loggers uh, arrested in, in record time. Um, and because before, you know, the rainforest is so immense that you wouldn't, that you could have deforestation happening a couple miles away on massive scales that you would never hear. You couldn't hear it, but these sensitive microphones can detect these chainsaws at, at distances well beyond the human ear. And it's just one of these incredible applications. Now, I'll stop talking about applications of this stuff. I want to talk a little bit about you, Chris. I see a lot of guitars in the background. You recently <laughs> played guitar on an album. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I had a part. I mean, a small part. Uh, a couple songs I, I contributed to. Yeah. Is that something you always wanted to do? I know you're a big fan of music. I know that you... Uh, that, you know... All right. So the fact that you... you when did you start playing guitar? Oh, I was uh, fairly old. I was thirty-four. Yes, this is this yeah. is interesting because <laughs> um, too many people, I think, uh, get stuck in this idea that you're born with an innate ability to do something. Right. This is true of of anyone I talk to, like my my mother, my my brother, anyone. When I tell when I talk about my job, what I do, I'm a physicist. What things I study, they assume that my life came with an innate ability to do this stuff, right? And this bothers me so much because just like skateboarding, you're not born with the ability to do it. Just like playing guitar, you're not born with the ability to do it. You get good at it by practicing. And that's why I love that at 34 years old, you decided to pick up the guitar and you become quite good at it. Um, I know that you you will probably tell me you're not as good as I think you would be being <laughs> someone who has no experience, right? That's always the truth when you, when you, you know, when I, uh, when I was in a junior and undergraduate, I thought I was, I was, you know, going to be one of the best physicists to ever live. But as you get more into the field, you realize how far behind you really are. And it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to realize that, uh, there's people who work really hard at this and that you can attain the level that they have, if you put in the same amount of work. Now there's some oddities, right? Like uh, if we're talking about uh, bands, if you look at like Jim Morrison, right? Some people might tell you that maybe Jim Morrison didn't put in the same amount of work that say Robert Plant did, but he just had this like 
this ability to electrify people and, and, and write really interesting and I guess electrifying is the word to use songs. Um, and then you have Led Zeppelin and then they struggled for a long time before they became the people they were. And in the physics world, you look at Einstein. Einstein got blacklisted from every single university he tried applying to before he eventually found his way to success. Um, and the point is, like, you are you play guitar now. You were not born with the innate ability to play guitar. That was something that you picked up at the age of 34. You said, I want to do this, and you practice, and you practice day in and day out, and now you're pretty damn good at it. Uh, and I think that that is, is awesome. I think that that is awesome <laughs> for people to do that, um, for people to do anything like that, right? Because you always can, no matter what you want to do. If you want to be a BMX star, you can do that. At, maybe you couldn't do it at 55 if you let your whole life go by and you have like sciatica. I don't know right. how, how good you're going to be, but, but um, it's important. It's an important lesson. I think it's great that you've done it. I, are you going to keep trying to improve upon these skills and, and try to play more music for more people? Uh, well, I don't know about playing more music for more people. If the opportunity arises, sure. Uh, but it's not what I got into it for. Okay. Um, so I basically needed a hobby uh, that was not work-related. Okay. And uh, what a hobby it was. And I've always been interested in music. I actually started playing the harmonica when I was 33. And uh, I got a, a year into that. And I thought, you know, I, I would like to try to switch over to guitar. It just seemed more interesting to me at the time. And I've uh, been taking lessons ever since. I think it's important to continue to take lessons as much as I can, as my time permits, because uh, it, it allows me to growth. It's a, it's a way of growing outside of my profession, yeah. personal growth. It gives me a creative outlet. Uh, I have had to work very hard at it. Music was not something that at all came to me easily. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, uh, neither was math or physics. Right. Uh, I had to work very hard at both. I mean, I wasn't born solving equations. Nobody really is, right? I, uh, and so uh, I worked really hard to develop what meager understanding of math and physics that I currently have. And uh, uh, same with guitar. You know, I have just spent many 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 countless hours just practicing it because it's just something i want to do uh whether i spend the rest of my life playing the instrument I, I really don't know i mean it could be that i find another hobby that i get into and uh do but i definitely am the type of person who doesn't do something halfway i mean 20 years ago i was teaching martial arts and i was in that 100 percent all the way um and i just find that if you're going to do something you might as well um, you know, do the best you can at it. And the way you do that is through working at it and practicing. Otherwise, what's the point of doing it if you're not going to, um, you know, try to be the best you can be at it. And also avoid the hang up of comparing yourself to others. We all fall victim to this, but, you know, your progress, whether it's your progress as a scientist or as a musician, as a poet, as an artist, uh, as a football player, whatever, uh, either American football or, or soccer, right? Uh, it doesn't matter. Um, it's what is the enjoyment that you get out of it. And if it works out and you can make a career out of doing it, fantastic. If not, keep it as your passion and enjoy yep. it. Yep. But the, uh, so what we were talking about earlier, I think that you can make a career out of it. And not speaking to you and then the guitar in particular, although I think you probably could if you wanted to have a very large following on online. 
play guitar. Um, okay, you're you're really overstating my ability, but uh, I, thank I you. Think, I like that you go. Well, no, I think that there's like a there's like this idea that people like to 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 grow with you, right? They like to see. Um, it's so people aren't encouraged enough in this world. I think. I think that the the public school system in particular does not provide the necessary encouragement that it should. Right? You sit down to take these these silly uh, tests where you fill out a couple bubbles, answer a couple multiple choice questions, and they tell you what you would be good at as a profession. That might be the biggest bullshit exam in the history of forever. To pretend that answering a few bubbles. Uh, isn't any indication of what you should do in your life, um, especially if it's something that you do not find enjoyment in. And yeah. there's 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 this idea. It's like you fill out this exam and it tells you you should be you should go to the military, you should be a police officer, you should be a teacher. Um, and I feel that there's a general lack of encouragement there. I feel that the entire public school system, at least the school I went to was built around this idea of attaining mediocrity, right? Attaining just enough to survive and no more. And that's really easy to do, actually. It's really easy to attain just enough to survive and no more, and there's a lot of people living that way. Um, But I think that there's not enough encouragement in the sense that you should be being told that you could achieve anything you want to do. It doesn't matter what you... You could be, like I mentioned earlier, you could weave baskets online. But if you're really good at weaving baskets online and you upload videos for seven years in a row, chances are you're going to have a following of people who like to watch you weave baskets. I truly believe that there's any art form out there. If you get good at it, people want to grow with you. They want to be encouraged by you. Um, there's people who who have a following just because they're serial failures and they have grown out of that failure. And now they are people who, who are at the top of their game. That's I think that's why we look at athletes so much. I think that's why we like athletes. Uh, we, we revere athletes. Because they're people who, you can see the struggles. You can see the losses on national television. You can see the, the failures that they have. You can see all the times they lose. And there's a, a certain enjoyment with, with growing with them again. You know, like, oh, the new season started. I'm going to watch my player now win. I'm going to watch him grow from being a loser to being a winner. And you get a lot of encouragement out of that. And that encouragement does not exist outside of, of really outside of athletics, I don't think. Um, yeah, so, I think actually you're touching on a few things. Um, I think one of the things that you don't see, though, with the athletes that's not touted is the hours of practice and hard work. That doesn't get televised, right? Right. And so, yeah, you do see the failures in games, but you still see them perform at a high level. Yes. And you don't see the time that they took to slog it out to get to that. We value success, but we don't necessarily value the process of getting there. Yes. I so agree. yeah, and then the other thing that I have been finding, and I don't like getting into discussions of like this generation versus that generation, but one of the things I have noticed as my time as a professor uh, over the last 14, 15 years is that I'm noticing less, uh, or I should say, more risk aversion. The, the, I'm seeing a decrease in students willing to take a risk and try something. Yes. 
Now, students have always been risk adverse, right? Because the system encourages that. You, you get good grades by best way of getting good grades is by doing stuff that you already know you're good at. Yes. And good grades get you the, the story is that good grades get you the job, get you the promotion, you know, whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, what I've noticed really over my time, my career is certainly the fear of trying something outside of the, the unknown, something outside of the norm, right? The unknown. Yeah. And if you are risk adverse in that way, then you're not going to try that basket weaving video cast. Yes. Because you're afraid of the failure already. Correct. And second, I think that there is also, or third, I should say, I can count, I swear. Um, I think that there is also a um, over expectation of results. I, yes. So, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So you see the one successful basket weaving uh, webcaster and you think, well, I can do that. Mm-hmm. And you, you expect that within a year or six months or whatever unrealistic time frame you might have, you will get there. And chances are you probably aren't right. Yes. Um, because that, that, that person, maybe it was clearly hard work, but also right place, right time hit the trend of basket weaving just at the, the peak, what, whatever, yes. right? Whatever the case might be. Yes. And, and the space may only allow for one well-known basket weaving webcaster, right? Mm-hmm. So that, however, shouldn't deter you from just doing it. Don't have those expectations that you're going to quit your day job and go into basket weaving video casting. Right. Instead, pursue that and come to realize that if I have to work, quote unquote, my day job, but pursue this passion at night, is that really a terrible thing? Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I agree. And I do want to, if you're done, yeah, I want to touch on something. Yeah. Um, I don't think actually, like uh, you mentioned that maybe the space only allows for one basket weaver. I do not subscribe to the idea that there are not enough seats at the table for anything. I think that uh, if you, at the very least, imagine there's only one seat at the table for the basket weaver you shouldn't assume that the seat is taken. Right. Right. The most popular person in the space doesn't necessarily sit on the throne forever. Right. And, and that is true for every field. I don't think that there's two, there's not enough seats at the table. Right. So like there's, there's like a hundred million podcasts out there. Okay. I don't think that there are not enough seats at the table. I think this table is infinite. I think that there's something people really like about exploring someone else's ideas and exploring someone else's life in a long form way. There's not enough conversation in the world around you. I, I, I don't know about you, but I very, very rarely talk to someone for more than 10 minutes at a time, unless it's my wife, like no, our, just someone else. Very, very rarely. Our, our society's not set up for that. Yes. But if you think, think about like the, the standard default greeting, hi, how are you? Nobody yes. cares how you are, right? And it, also, just, it also, yeah, I was going to say, it also doesn't mean any. No one wants you to answer it. The worst right. is when someone answers it. Yep. If so, if I say hi, how are you, and you say, oh, I'm not well, I'm like, no, no, no. This is not how it goes. No, right. you, you say right. I'm fine, and we keep moving. You can't. I'm not a therapist. I cannot deal with this input right now. I was getting an input I did not expect. Uh, it's it's uh. And I know a lot of people that do that. Uh, and so I learned to ask them a different question, like uh, maybe no question at all. Um, but but I agree. But I think that there's a certain allure to it. I think that people really like it. I think that people 
although they avoid it, I think my belief is that there's actually a part of, of us that really likes the idea of sitting down, discussing things with someone. Um, we're, we're one of the few species that can communicate. And we are the only species, barring whatever your ideas about dolphins are, that can communicate with complex verbal cues. Um, and yes, some people might say dolphins do that too, but, but we have speech. And I think that people really like when other people sit down and utilize that speech. And no two people are the same. And so every single time you sit two different people or three different people down in front of one another, you're going to get a completely different conversation. And I think that is why podcasting has become so, so incredibly successful for some people at the top. Uh, and even you can even have a successful podcast if you're sitting at the end of the table um, because there are so many listeners. There are so many people on the hunt for, for new content in their life. Um, and, and I think that there's never too many seats at the table for whatever it is that you do. Yeah, I hope so. I hope you're right. I, I really do. Um, I think that I think there's a natural supply and demand. There is a, a limit to demand for certain things. Uh, and maybe basket weaving podcasts has an infinite demand. But um, I think that there probably are some, but I don't think the limits are as narrow as we might think they are. Yes. Um, and yes. that's the key, right? That's the key. Also, mm -hmm. we speak about animals, by the way. You should check out sometime. Look up um, crows because there's some evidence now to start to suggest that not only they're, they're, they're clearly using tools and also that there seems to be some kind of culture there because they're talking about um, tool development and how tool development's passed down and communicated and stuff like that. So uh, some, I I uh, was listening to a science podcast the other day and they were mentioning about, and I only heard it in passing and I've been meaning to check this out, but it was very interesting about crows might be um, even smarter than we thought. And we thought that they were fairly sharp to begin with. So yeah. Yeah. We, we uh, some, check, check. I will check that out. We have some geese up here in Rochester that are, that know how to cross the street. It's incredible. Yeah. The busy, busy, busy street. Uh, they don't use the crosswalk, but they just, they're smart about it. Uh, yeah. They'll step out very slowly. The biggest one, the one that if you hit, it will damage your car. He'll, <laughs> he'll, he'll step out first, and, and he'll kind of stop traffic, and then he'll walk very slowly through the lanes as his as his comrades follow behind. And uh, they cross the street at regular times every day, like at 9 a.m. They cross the street, and then they cross back at 3 p.m. And they have it down. They don't get hit. Now, so I imagine sometimes someone just is not in the mood for this, this uh, goose crossing uh, event, and so they just plow through, but... I think there's some societal pressure to uh, avoid those sort of people, but yeah, yeah, they're smart. They're smart. We're smart, but there's something special about, about communication and I don't think we utilize it enough. And with that, I guess we'll wrap this up. Thank you so much. I oh, my pleasure. That, Thanks for having me. I hope that, uh, everything's going great for you this summer. I know you took a trip to, uh, to Maine and, and parts of Canada and that's, uh, just absolutely beautiful out in Maine, in Acadia National Park. Uh, oh, yeah. Stunning. Unreal. Uh, I just lo I lo love to get out there. Hope hopefully, we will be going back soon. But nevertheless, I hope that all of your, uh, your research is going well. I hope that your guitar game continues to improve. Um, and uh, with that being said, Chris, I will uh, I'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks for having me.